Are we starting? <laughs> I can't actually see with these lights. Why don't, why don't everyone go quiet? Shh. And, and, and we'll do this professionally. Ready? Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the Django Bar. Welcome to the Sydney Design Festival. Welcome to In Situ Science. Thank you so much for coming here. We're here to celebrate the Sydney Design Festival, and we're going to be exploring the, the messy intersection of where science and design clash in the middle. So to get an idea of what sort of audience we have here, can I have a show of hands? Who would sort of classify themselves on the, uh, the science side of the spectrum Science fans, working scientists, I still can't see. All right, got a good, good amount of uh, What about people on the other side? Designy people, artsy people, something like that. All right. Thanks so much for coming. Thanks for humoring uh, in situ science <laughs> and coming along tonight. So, now the people that we have today are, are experts that span these two fields, and hopefully we're going to see how these uh, uh, things clash in the middle to make beautiful works of art and engineering. What about people that don't fit either end of the spectrum? Good. One person. Good. Last ch- <laughs> Again, last chance. No one here for piano recitals, life drawing classes. Nope. Good. All right. I think we should get things started. So, are we ready to meet our amazing panel of, of experts? All right. Let's do it. Let's, uh, why don't you help me welcome, on the, welcome them on stage. So, first of all, from the University of Sydney... We have science communicator, educator, podcaster extraordinaire, Tom Gordon. Tom, come on up on stage. Take a seat. Next up, from Macquarie University, entomologist, neurobiologist, all-round renaissance man, Chris Reed. Come on up, Chris. Next up, also from the University of Sydney, Lighting designer and professor of all things illuminatory, Wendy Davis. Coming up, Wendy. Finally, the big gun. Artist, designer, empath, astronaut, ex-Yakuza heavyweight, Laura Jade. Laura, come on. (laughs) Take a seat, guys. You guys, to your right, you will see a little stand with a microphone on it. Grab a mic. Cool. Welcome. Thanks. Thanks so much for coming. Thanks for having me. <laughs> right now, to introduce you to the crowd, which you may or may not be able to see because of these lights, <laughs> we're just going to go through, and I'd like you to give a quick elevator pitch, describe the type of work you do, the audience. Keep it brief. We'll, we'll keep things moving. We'll start with Tom. Oh, hi. Uh, I'm Tom. I'm from the School of Physics at Sydney University, and my job is to talk to high school science, uh, high school science students, physics students mostly, uh, university students, general public about physics and science. We use experiments to show students about their syllabus, and we talk about how to educate people with physics. That's about it. All right. Yeah, you can applaud that. That's, that's fine. Good. <laughs> Chris. Uh, hi everyone, I'm Chris Reed. I'm from Macquarie Uni. And I study groups of things that work together to solve problems. So if you've seen ants, and it'd have to be pretty weird not to have ever seen uh, you might have wondered how their colonies organise themselves. How do all these little tiny creatures run around and, and know what to do? 
Well, the answer is they don't. Um, each of the little ants has a very limited amount of information and um, ability to do anything. But together, they can build crazy structures and solve really difficult problems. And I s figure out how they do that at the individual level. And my work extends from slime molds to ant colonies, um, things with brains, without brains, and how they work together to solve problems. And eventually, um, figure out how to improve our own engineering systems um, by incorporating those principles. That actually sounds a lot like what I do with high school students, too. <laughs> As in you figure out how complex groups of high school students run around and solve problems. And... Things with brains, without brains, yeah. Good, <laughs> <laughs> pretty much. All right. Wendy. I'm Wendy Davis. I work in the School of Architecture, Design and Planning at the University of Sydney. I run a professional master's degree in architectural lighting design and a research lab where we're really focused on rethinking the way that we bring light into architectural spaces, how we can leverage technology to illuminate our spaces more efficiently and to create a better visual environment. Uh, hello, I'm Laura and I'm an artist uh, that works with light. Um, I've actually done a lighting design degree um, but through UTS and uh, I use light to explore the body so I'm looking at biological sort of frequencies and rhythms and communicating them as data through light so you can have a kind of experience of yourself in different ways. Um, one of my works that's most well known is to do with the brain and I visualise brain activity using EEG. Um, and yeah, that's what I do. All right, that that was that was great. That was okay. That was good. Uh, I'm going to grill you now a little bit further, and because we have a mix of scientists, non-scientists, designers, non-designers, uh, I'm going to make it a little bit harder. So I'm going to grill you about uh, your research, and if I think you're maybe getting a little bit jargony. Maybe, maybe uh, glossing over some details. I'm going to ring a little bell. Whoops. <laughs> and ask for clarification. All right? So I'm going to start with Chris. I thought so. <laughs> so you're working on groups of things. What mm. types of things? Um, they can be anything. Mm. <laughs> but the ones that I focus on are colonies of ants, mm. um, honeybees, mm. and slime molds. It'll be get a better bell. There you go. Would you like to know what a slime mold What's is? What's a slime mold, Chris? Uh, so a slime mold uh, is what we call a protist, uh, <laughs> which is a group of organisms um, which basically doesn't fit into any of the other groups. So you have your plants, your animals, fungi. No, no that's fine. No, not go. <laughs> Bacteria. I'm sorry, this bell's not working. We all know what bacteria is. <laughs> God, so these bacteria are like uh, blobs, cellular, unicellular blobs. Yeah, the, the yeah. protists are. So, uh, Hang on, wait, whoa, whoa. bacteria are B Bacteria protists? are not protists. Okay. No, these are the, the other thing, the fifth kingdom of life. Okay. So uh, these are basically single-celled organisms that have, still have a complex architecture inside them, just like we do. Uh, but they are able to do some crazy, crazy behaviours. So, for instance, the slime molds that I study um, obviously don't have a brain or any neurons or anything like we have. 
any brain cells. Good. Uh, so they can't solve problems using intelligence like we do. Uh, but they're still able to solve really complex problems, like a, a maze, like a labyrinth maze. Um, there was one that was designed for five-year-old um, humans, and the slime mold can solve this pretty easily. Uh, things like making uh, complicated decisions between a whole bunch of different food options that uh, are better or worse in different categories. The slime mold can uh, assess them all and judge which is the best way to, to get a, a good dietary mix that, that suits its, its needs. Uh, even anticipating periodic events so they can learn, learn regular-based uh, okay, things yep. and actually respond to that in a way that mimics how we learn regularly spaced things. So there's a huge amount of things they can do without a brain, and in fact it shows us that uh, this kind of complex behaviour could be spread across all organisms. Of The abilities could be there. I'm going to pull you up on organisms. It's a bit jargony. All living things. Good, thank you. <laughs> uh, so that's your slime mould intro. And if you're very lucky, you might even get to see a slime mould tonight. They are all around you, by the way. You're probably all covered in slime moulds. Um, <laughs> every living surface is sort of technically covered in little tiny microscopic slime moulds. Uh, but you're going to see some macroscopic ones tonight, if you're very lucky. Big ones. <laughs> <laughs> Chris Reed, everybody. I think that deserves a round of applause. <laughs> now, Wendy, of all the people on stage, I probably understand your field the least. So you're an illumination designer. Go. <laughs> uh, I am, I'm an academic. Oh. So... <laughs> So I have a career at a university that involves a mix of teaching, research, and service to my field. Um, So I consider myself more of a researcher than a practicing designer. Many of my students are designers. My graduates are designers. That's super awesome. Um, My own background actually is in visual neuroscience. It's in the study of human visual perception. (laughs) How we see... Um, I got my PhD from the University of California in a program that was called Vision Science, interdisciplinary, everything about how one or other animal sees. And it was after that that an opportunity arose. The lighting industry was changing, technology was advancing, and something we now refer to as LEDs were light-emitting diodes. Is that better? No. Nope. <laughs> Semiconductor-based light sources. <laughs> Something that is halfway between a conductor and an insulator. <laughs> New energy-efficient lighting technologies. Sure, let's buy that. <laughs> That's very nondescriptive. Anyway, uh, the lighting industry was just starting to think about using these new technologies for architectural purposes, but in order to design them well, we really have to understand how we as humans perceive color and the interaction between light surfaces and our perception of color. And that's how I entered the field. I worked for the US federal government for a number of years, and then I ended up in Sydney where I run lighting design. Easy. Uh, Giving up on this, how then does 
surely you just turn on a light and a room's bright, right? Sometimes. <laughs> um, I mean, one of the big motivations for the work that we do in my lab is the fact that much of the built environment, buildings and stuff... Um, I was have, fine with built environment. Have, I, <laughs> I can predict the bell. Uh, <laughs> have, the practices have evolved over time. I'm an evolutionary biologist. So. He misused the word architectures. I okay. gave him a pass. So I feel like we can, we can use definition two in the All dictionary. Right. Changed over time. They, they've changed. They've advanced over time. Okay. Um, but really in response to what was available. It's not like there was a scientist that at the very beginning of time said, what would be the ideal way to construct a building? And did a bunch of experiments and figured out that ideal way. And then that's what we do. Instead, people started building buildings, and for the most part, scientists have been studying what results. So, and this applies to many aspects of architecture. Somebody does something, a designer, a practitioner does something, and the scientific study of it is sort of after the fact. But we're really quite interested in saying, if we didn't know anything about how we bring light into buildings, if you can't just flip a switch and the room gets bright, how would we want to do it? What would be the most efficient way, the way that would result in the most pleasant or attractive visual environment? And by thinking about the technologies we have available, we can think of some pretty radically different ways that we could do lighting design. All right, I'll buy that. Wendy cool. Davis, everybody. Good job. <laughs> All right, I'm going to go back to Tom. So Tom Light, Chris, you also study little unruly groups of organisms. Yeah. What are you studying about them? Uh, so I see a huge uh, percentage of the physics students in New South Wales. They come through my lab to do the program that I run. Uh, about a quarter of them, which is 2,500 students, which is mo more students uh, in physics than some countries have physics students, which is pretty cool. And I treat them as my data points. So some physicists do experiments on stars. I do experiments on students. Uh, and they're my data points. Uh, I ask them first. I have ethics approval. It's okay. <laughs> <laughs> and I ask them, uh, what is it about the experiment that they're doing uh, that helps them learn. So what, the first question I'll say is, does that help you? Uh, and they say, yes. Let's say, for example, I'm doing an experiment with LEDs. I have an experiment with LEDs. You don't have to do that. We've already had that explanation. <laughs> Energy-efficient lighting technology. These Thank ones. you, Andy. These ones. See these ones? Those. <laughs> I was predicting that. Uh, could not so let you get away with that one. <laughs> Uh, uh, basically switches, right? So uh, switches in electric circuits. So you can do experiments on LEDs and ask students, does that help you understand the LED? And they will say yes most of the time. And then you ask them why. Uh, the thing is, if I just show them that, they will say, oh, yeah, that helped me because I can put my hands on it and do some experiments. But they will also say things like, oh, it really helped me because I got to do the calculation. But they did no calculation which is really strange, and that's what I'm trying to figure out. I'm trying to figure out what they learn. I can make them learn something about getting their hands on it, but I don't understand why they're learning something else, and that's what I'm trying to figure out. That's pretty good. If I wasn't a weasel about the LED, you would have gotten away with no deans. <laughs> good job, Tom Gordon, everybody. <laughs> Laura, you're doing things a little bit differently in that you're, you're on the, the, the art side of the spectrum. But you said you're doing stuff about 
letting people essentially well, what, see their own bodies in action in a way. Yeah, that's right. I, I want to kind of invite people into their insides um, and put their insides outside of them so they can confront them um, and kind of have a dialogue with their own uh, yeah, minds and, um, and selves, you know, yeah. How? <laughs> well, <laughs> seems complicated. Uh, so um, the work that I do with the brain, uh, for instance, uses an electroencephalograph, which is a, um, a brain wave reading uh, device. That's, it, it's like a... It, it's something on your head that... <laughs> um, <laughs> That takes the electricity of your brain, because oh. your brain is just pumping with, you know, beautiful electrons that are emitting electrical activity. And electrons? Uh, it's sort of like, you know, the, every time a neuron's communicating with another neuron, every time your brain cell is doing anything at all, you know, uh, it's a, emitting some sort of a electrical charge. And we can read that with the thing you put on your head called an EEG. And... Uh, I have a wireless one, and um, it basically has 14 sensors that sits on your head. I, I missed EEG. I'm going to EEG. pull you up on that. Yeah. EEG stands for electroencephalograph, um, and that's what we call uh, a brain uh, reading device when you're looking at the electrical activity of the brain. Go on. So it's a sensor, a brain sensor. And uh, I, I take the, the electrical activity of people's minds... And I use it for my own purposes, which is uh, <laughs> to, uh, to capture it with light. Um, so Not like out of the matrix, <laughs> really getting electrical energy to use batteries now. Uh, not yet, but that would be awesome. <laughs> if we want to like power a building maybe with brains, you know, one day uh, we could just th- think the lights on, um, which is definitely possible now, actually. And so my, my work is about thinking the lights on. It's, it's a, a sculpture um, that basically captures your brain activity and light within the sculpture so you can see your mind um, in real time and, and what it's doing. So it breaks it down into different frequencies. And the frequencies <laughs> are d- different thought patterns or different conscious states that someone might be having. Uh, for instance, um, an alpha frequency. Alpha is the technical term for <laughs> if your brain is emitting something around 8 to 15 hertz. Um, which is Are the... you going to explain a hertz? Are <laughs> we getting too deep here? Yeah, zigzags. Uh, All right, in per yeah. second. Yeah, exactly, per second, zigzags <laughs> per second. Um, and in, anyway, so that, that, that's a calm state of mind generally. It, it, it's associated with sort of meditative relaxation states. And so I represent that as blue light in my sculpture. So people get a feedback, of, um, a feedback loop of what's happening inside their mind. Um, if they're really stressed, for instance, it'll be red. Um, and if they're sort of just not really thinking at all, it'll be green, um, which is kind of theta, which actually represents lots of complicated things. Um, yeah. All right. Thanks so much, Laura. Give her a round of applause. <laughs> well, you know, Wendy, as the, uh, the, the lighting expert in here, how are you enjoying the, uh, the, the lighting up here? It's doing its job. <laughs> well, no, I mean, stage lighting is a funny thing, right? It's not for the benefit of the illuminated subject. It's for the benefit of the audience. We can't see anything. And there's sort of a, there's a freedom in that. 
right? You all could be asleep or just really giving us evil looks, and we wouldn't see it. But you can see our faces, for better or worse. So, yeah, they're doing the job. I'm wearing a waistcoat, so I'm, I'm, I'm really feeling the, the lineup here. But we'll, we'll persist. Now, we, we have overlap in what we're talking about here. We have some crossover with light thinking. We have some crossover with brains. Chris, you've brought a brain along as show and tell. We're going to props already. Yes. Accelerating fast. Go and get this thing you've brought along and tell us what it is. And later, Chris will be bringing out the the piano accordion and singing a few numbers as well. Uh, These are all his props. Anyone play the bazooki? Want to accompany me? (laughs) Uh, This is just a thing. Um, So it's a honeybee brain, obviously. Uh, Of course. Anyone can tell that. Um, This was just a gift, so one of my supervisors um, has been looking after me pretty well, and he always wanted a a 3D model of a honeybee brain for Christmas that we all put on the Santa list. Um, So I just made him one, um, 3D printed. It's actually the the data comes from um, 11 honeybee brains that were sliced up in Germany, and... uh, they it's measured. a German honeybee oh, yeah, brain. Keep that in mind. You can, Obviously, you can tell by the, the big lobes. Tell. These ones here, <laughs> uh, <laughs> the German lobes that we call, as we call them. Are you um, sure they didn't squish them in the process? Yeah, no, no that's that's definitely how they are. Is it? Um, so, well, I think so. That's <laughs> what <laughs> so the Germans tell me. Uh, so, it's a, it's an average brain of a honeybee, and uh, as far as I can tell, it's the only one in the world because um, I had to make it myself. Um, but it all comes apart. You can see all the bits. In fact, the guy, it actually helped him a bit. Um, these knobs here are bigger than he thought. And he didn't know that until he saw the model. So uh, maybe that'll come out in the next paper. Who knows? So, so th- this is something you, you didn't buy at Big W. You no, no. Designed and made uh, it yourself. This is a design, design. festival, um, obviously. Yeah, this is the design that I have um, for anything. So, yeah, I had to... Um, basically break it down in a 3D model and make sure it would print and attach magnets and troubleshoot it all. And, yeah, so it's my brain. This is a one-to-one scale? Uh, We'd be in trouble. We'd be in big trouble. Uh, I did have a honeybee pinned out to show you for scale, but I thought everyone knows what a honeybee looks like. Um, But basically, this this is the reason that that he studies what he does. So he's a a neuroethologist. No dings? Come on, man. So neuro meaning brain and ethologist is someone who studies behaviour. So he he studies how the brain uh, links to behaviour. And honeybees are particularly good models for that because um, their brains only have about 250,000 brain cells and our brains have, I think it's 85 billion brain cells. So if you're interested in studying how brains work, a bee is a a much easier thing to to pull apart. Uh, And with this drastically reduced brain, they can do some really incredible things. Um, so honeybees are capable of some really sophisticated learning, um, and that's what he does. So, brain. Now, I, I want to get, actually want to get Laura's perspective on this. So, no, Laura... Just, I'm just confused. Are these the eyes? Oh, okay. Yeah, maybe I should give a bit more context. So, as you're looking at it there, that's what it looks like inside a bee's head. If this is was... great material for an audio podcast. Yeah, yeah. I mean, point that out. So if the bee was much larger and had a see-through head and a 3D-printed brain, this is what you'd see. 
Um, and each one of these lobes connects to different regions. So this is the optic lobe, the brain cells from the eyes. The bit that was fatter that, that he thought was you know, bigger yeah, than Yeah, I don't know was. what that is. Does he so, know what that does? No. No? <laughs> cool. <laughs> I, I mean, and the way they would test that is to get a live bee, uh, open up its head capsule and inject drugs into this region that oh. block any activity and see how that affected the behaviour. Laura, the how small so, can we make EEGs? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Could we? Is it BEGs? <laughs> 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 Thanks, Tom. In good form. But this, is, this is a good example of how art or design can help science because if you're, if you're printing a brain in, you know, I don't know what the scale is of this, um, but... It, you know, for him to see that that part is bigger, it would make you curious to actually research that and see why. Yeah. Um, and sometimes you can only get that sense when you make things visual and physical. Definitely. Yeah. So, Laura, with the stuff you do, would, would, okay, first of all, would you call yourself an artist? I guess so, yeah. Now <laughs> I'm sort of getting paid to be that. <laughs> is that the de- de- definition of artist you're Makes getting paid you or not? Yeah, totally. Otherwise, this is a hobby, according <laughs> to the government. <laughs> but now Chris has made this himself. Is Chris an artist? Oh, uh, I, I, you know what? I, like My definition of an artist is really... It, it <laughs> it's really everybody, because... Oh, yeah, I was like, on. so... Really? Um, you know, because I think... Like, for me, an artist is, is the way you see the world, and so that can come out in different professions in different ways. So, you know, I would have to study you and see how you, uh, how you are in the world. No, I think that's good, because I think, I think everyone's a scientist. Yeah, um, totally. Yeah. Ooh, so, you know, Ooh. you're all, like that. all my buddies. Pandering to the crowd. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> that's what it's all about. Well, talking about this, this crossover between science and art and design... Uh, if, if I use the acronym STEM, hands up who would know what I was talking about. Good. What about the acronym STEAM? Slightly less hands. All right. These are acronyms we hear thrown about in the science and art world. Tom, I, I got a question for you. I don't know where I got this question. It came to me in a dream or something. It's a great question. Tom, what does STEAM mean to you? Uh, that's a great question, James. <laughs> we got one person got the joke. <laughs> you can explain the joke if okay, you like. Okay, so... <laughs> that's the hallmark of a good joke, by the yeah, way. Exactly, I was about to say. <laughs> technically not a joke then. <laughs> uh, so I have a podcast called Stempunk, um, and Steampunk was taken. So I, I said Stempunk because I work in STEM, which is science, technology, engineering, and maths. And I had James on my podcast, and I asked him, what does STEM mean? And then he had me on his podcast and really unfairly asked me the same question. I don't have an answer for it. I, d- I don't know. I have to think about it. Anyway, so STEAM is STEM with an A for arts and humanities, and I, th- I think we can include design and artistic things in there as well. So STEAM is st- uh, science, technology, engineering, arts, humanities, and mathematics. And so what, there's a H in there as well. Uh, so humanities, yes. We oh, can say geez. arts, humanities. Um, <laughs> or a double M for medicine as well. Uh, so steam I've heard P steam as well to it's stick in uh, physics as a separate thing, which is just gross. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> or uh, psychology uh, can, be, can be that as well. Uh, it's a silent P, by the way. <laughs> So, so I, I want to grill you on this. Do yeah. you think these acronyms are useful in any way? You've asked numerous scientists their thoughts on it. 
I, I have. I've asked many, many people uh, what STEM is and what STEAM is. And we always have this debate, is it STEM or is it STEAM? Uh, and I really don't have an answer. What I'm trying to do is collect everyone's responses. As James says, we, as scientists, we collect data on just about everything. So I'm taking everyone's responses, writing them down, and then coding what they say to try and come up with a definition of what STEM is. And I still don't know. We still don't know. So these acronyms, while helpful to put it into, uh, onto, onto a T-shirt or into a pamphlet or you know, into the, the mouths of chief scientists around Australia, which is really helpful because now we know what STEM is, but it doesn't really say what it is. We just know what it stands for. Uh, but it's kind of like, uh, to me, it's like DNA. We don't really kn know what DNA is, like some people do, um, but I don't. Uh, <laughs> but I know what the, the letters stand for, and I know what you mean when you say DNA. So I know what you mean when you say STEM, and hopefully the more we talk about it, you know what I mean when we say STEM. But really, it's just another silo. It's another place to put a definition. And as scientists, we really don't like that. So as soon as you put a definition on something, we try and change it and mix it around. So I'm guessing all of us here would, would probably be in agreement that we don't really like hard definitions of things. In some ways, all of you span fields, whether it be science, art design, tinkering, whatever, communications, making science accessible. So I'm guessing you have a broad area of interests. How, what, is, what was this like as a career path? So, Wendy, you, you were in this area of uh, where science and design meet. Was there any chance, any time where you could have just been an interior designer? I don't mean to say just an interior designer. But Damn. <laughs> I'm sure I could have been an interior designer. It is a lovely career path. I would never disparage it. Um, but my own career evolved. Uh, Changed over time. Advanced. Advanced yes. over time in response to circumstances <laughs> in a way that I think is increasingly common, especially at these sort of fields or disciplines that are sitting at the intersection of things. I mean, when I started my PhD, I was studying visual perception from a very sort of biological point of view. And that was what I was going to do for the rest of my life. And opportunities came up, and I found myself in a very technology-focused field, and I've rolled with it, and it's worked out pretty well. Um, but it is interesting because so many administrators around research talk about the benefits of interdisciplinarity, like where you know design and when I think about lighting, there's a lot of physics, there's a lot of neuroscience, all of these things are coming together in support of this idea of how do we see stuff in architectural spaces. Um, but where it fits can be really tricky. I'm in an architecture school, there are counterparts like me around the world who are maybe in an engineering or in science. Um, in some ways we can fit just about everywhere, but in some ways we don't quite fit anywhere. I mentioned I worked for the US federal government, it was for a hardcore physics institution. Most of my colleagues thought that I was like the sort of woohoo one because I was focused on humans. Like, what? And then I came to this architecture and design school and I fall on the complete opposite end of the spectrum compared to what many of my colleagues do. I'm like this hardcore scientist and I do numbers and make graphs and it's all very like, ooh. Um, and, it's, and I've sort of gotten used to it and I kind of love being on the periphery of wherever I am. But the traditional intellectual home that 
a typical physicist or a typical biologist has throughout their career doesn't really exist when you're at the edge. All right, and Laura, we actually met way back when, when you were studying biology uh, and I was teaching it. Uh, what went wrong? What did I do wrong? <laughs> why, why aren't you a biologist? Uh, I realized, although, although ants are super interesting, I just couldn't study them for 10 years. <laughs> But Chris, thoughts? <laughs> not, and it's Getting not burned left, right, and centre. <laughs> it's only because of my own brain. Like I think ants actually probably could fulfil me for ten years if I really understood them, like you know, like other people do, because they're probably incredibly fascinating. But the, the sort of perks of being an artist um, is that you get to kind of dip into any kind of pie you you are interested in at the time, and so. You know, being in, in just science or just in a silo of science, I found really super fascinating but too limited because I was always interested in kind of shaking it up or looking between the gaps or looking over at the engineering or looking somewhere else, you know, and kind of bringing connections to what I was doing. So I like actually silos because then there's places in the middle and, you know, I can run around there quite freely at the moment because um, not many other people are doing that, especially in Australia. Yeah. All right, Chris, here's your chance to, to rebut. <laughs> Do you feel siloed? <laughs> uh, yes and no. Uh, it's certainly a bit more difficult to get funding for interdisciplinary things. Uh, I, I've been quite lucky um, in the past, though. Uh, I do think you can be quite free to study what you want, um, but you have to make a much more compelling case um, for that to funding bodies and universities. Uh, and certainly it's a bit sad, but the, the scope for basic science, which is what we call fundamental science, just doing science for the fun of it, um, interest, the really interesting stuff, uh, it's getting much more difficult to fund that, mostly in Australia but also around the world. Um, funding bodies tend to now really want a, a practical application or an outcome they can make money from straight away, and that is stifling a lot of the creativity that um, scientists naturally have. And probably what you felt, uh, part of what you felt, and, and drove you into arts. Yeah, absolutely, because the academic kind of line that your life would follow, I think, would be really difficult. You know, it's hard. As, as an artist, I've accepted that I'm going to be poor my whole life, probably. <laughs> you know, scientists so are <laughs> <laughs> So there's more similarities again. Um, but you guys are under more pressure in the sense that you need to constantly justify your careers and your jobs and get the grants and get your positions, you know, um, uh, safe, you know, each year uh, or, or whatever. Whereas, you know, me, I'm kind of, no one's watching me. Um, well, you've convinced me. So how, how do I get into the art world? We could collaborate on something. It would be amazing. You can come to my studio, sleep on my floor. <laughs> In, in three years, when I may, my contract runs out and I have no job, I may have to take you up on that. No worries. But, Tom, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to guess. Uh, you, you've got the perfect life and don't have to worry about any of this conflicting stuff because you love science communication, you do science communication, you study it for a career, and you link in physics, which is your other passion. You seem to have all bases covered. So is, are you living the dream? Is there, is there anything else you need out of life? I don't, I don't know. That's All right, a, good. Okay. Problem solved. No, no, no. <laughs> no. Yes and no. Okay. 
but it's, you're it's a pretty cool job. I get I get to talk uh, to uh, I I walk down the corridor of the physics building and I can literally knock on the door of the of the smartest people that I know, ask them what they're doing, pretend to understand what they say, and then talk to that talk about that to high school students and other people. It's pretty cool, and they look at me as if I know all of that, and I I don't. I'm just <laughs> repeating what they said with more hand movements. <laughs> All right. Uh, actually, while we're here, Wendy, you used to work at the National Institute of Standards and Technology. Was this the hardcore physics place? This was the hardcore physics place. Now, what on earth does the National Institute of Standards do? Is this about training people how to date within their class? What, what, are we, what uh, sort no. of standards are we here? So the National Institute of Standards and Technology is part of the U.S. Department of Commerce. So it's part of the U.S. government. There's some sort of similar agencies within Australia and in most countries. The, the NMI. I used to work at the NMI. Yeah. So cool. <laughs> We're basically brothers. NMI, um, National, National Measurements M- Institute. Institute. Good, good. Um, also National Metrology Institute. Anyway, um, so one of the main functions of any National Measurement Institute is to establish the base measurements for a country. Somebody has to have the most tightly calibrated measure of, say, the meter that can be disseminated, which is the term that we use for propagating a measurement standard out. Whether that's through a sophisticated instrument, like I use a spectral radiometer, which does cool things for light, or a tape measure, something very sort of simple and basic. Um, and so the National Institute of Standards and Technology, goes by NIST, does that for the United States, as well as um, other sort of technology-enabling research. So there is a group there that is, uh, they've restructured a bit since I've left, but uh, dedicated to visible light and the measurement of visible light. One thing that's quite interesting about the basic measurements that we use for light that's different than pretty much everything else we do is that um, even the SI, the International System of Units, like the top, it was agreed to by a treaty, like a big deal. Um, Only for lighting is that unit linked to visual perception, linked to the human experience. So we could measure anything according to the human experience, right? We could measure mass according to how heavy something felt. And the scale would end at, like, bone crushing, right? Um, we could, we could uh, measure temperature in a similar sort of way, and the scale would end at your flesh is on fire. Um, we don't. We measure it purely based on the <laughs> physical... Pro- we don't. <laughs> <laughs> purely based on the physical properties, but independent to how a human experiences that. But with lighting, we take the human experience into account. And so the reason I ended up working there is because this sort of the fundamental way we measure light is linked to visual perception, that if we need to adjust our measurements in response to technology, which happens quite a lot. I mean, we often think about measurements as very static and stale and like, obviously, you just measure a meter by a meter. Um, But the way we do it gets better all the time and certain technologies will arise in various fields that will just show the shortcomings of the way we've been doing it. So when LEDs sort of came on the scene, a lot of the shortcomings with the way we measure light became apparent. And since my expertise from my PhD was in color vision, and color is a big part of lighting quality in an architectural space, I ended up working there to study how we can quantify the color of a light source. So if we're using human perception as a standard, humans 
very and are stupid and fallible. That's got to be a terrible technique. Um, well, I think humans are pretty great. Well. I don't think they're stupid. <laughs> uh, humans, humans do vary, uh, but we do have to keep in mind that something like visual perception is much, much more like thinking about the mechanism behind muscle contraction. It's going to be largely similar between people. Some people will have diseases, and so things will work differently. But amongst the general population, the, the, what happens biologically when our muscles contract is more or less the same. It's much more like that than something like mood or emotion, which, of course, is very subjective. And trying to think about you know, the mood of a light source for everybody um, would be probably pretty foolish. Would you agree, Laura? <laughs> Come at me. <laughs> Actually, I'm interested in how, like, do you deal with people who perceive more colours or more, more of the spectrum than others? Is there a kind of measure of that? Like, people who have extra cones as a rare condition? Yes, tetrachromacy. Um, so there is, and you've probably read it in, a, I mean, you guys are at a science podcast, so you're probably into science media. So I'm actually guessing most of you have come across a blog post or a newspaper article that talks about this phenomenon where some women have four of these color-sensing types of cells in their eye. Um, and it's interesting, if you go to the source article, the one that gets cited the most, that says, oh, and they can then see more color, and actually look at the methods involved in that particular bit of research... I think that you would, um, you, would, you would question the findings. Everything. Throwing a dime here on the podcast. Whoa. I know. Such a bit. <laughs> um, that was a massive insult for the non scientists in the room. They just, <laughs> they just got burned. <laughs> um, but the neural circuitry that we, that we all share uh, is really set up for us to have three. And so. There's a huge question. If we had four, how would we even use it? I don't doubt some people have four. So I the do. things in our eyes, can s- we see three colors, essentially. Well, we see <laughs> lots of colors. Well, but the cells themselves are so we have We to... have detectors who respond differently to different colors of the visible spectrum. Is that accessible enough? Uh, the bell's gone. I'm not using the bell anymore. You go, go nuts. You notice I'm making eyes at the no. bell. <laughs> um, but that's part of what's, what's interesting about color vision is it's not this sort of, I think, almost intuitive thing where we think of the visual system as detecting all of the colored components of light, which we often refer to by wavelength, which is one of the wave characteristics of light. Um, that's how some of the instruments that we have do it. But that's not how humans do it. We have these three different sensors, and they actually respond to most, each of them responds to most wavelengths of the visible spectrum, but just a different amount. And we ultimately perceive color by combining and comparing the outputs of these three. It's, it's basically the inverse version of how like a computer screen works. If you've ever played around with um, graphic design and manipulating color through the RGB, you know that you can get the same color through lots of different combinations. Um, and that's because of the way that our visual system works. All right. Makes sense? Yes, I, I've definitely got a primer on, on the work that you all do. I think I've got a fair <laughs> grasp of it. If you guys are still unsure, or if you guys want to ask a question... 
about what they do, our life, love, and the universe, and everything. Remember, you have our question sheets on your desks, or if you like, you can tweet your question to at in situ science. And we're going to put them to our panel. But for now, we're going to take a quick break. You can digest what you've heard. And we're going to come back in about 15 minutes and grill these guys uh, with your questions. So join me once more in thanking our panel. And we'll see you in a couple minutes. Thank you. (laughs) Guys, are we ready to get started again? All right. Have you all got your microphones? No. First up, what on earth are we looking at, Laura? <laughs> I brought my brain. All right. <laughs> my second brain. <laughs> second brain we've seen tonight. This is awesome. <laughs> yeah, this one's better than mine. Uh, it's more um, illuminated, let's okay. say. Okay. Um, <laughs> that's for <laughs> the listeners. <laughs> uh, yeah, this is my brain in a box. Yeah. Um, I take it around with me uh, when I want to... Um, Collect people's uh, thoughts. Should we give it a give it yeah. a run? Yeah, let's give it, give a, it a whirl. whirl. Do right. you want to wear the the? Oh, do I? Try and try <laughs> and stop me. What do I do? All right. I'm just going to sit very still. I'm going to wreck your hair. Oh, dude, if you wreck this hair, my oh God. God. Ooh ah. Thank you. You're thinking things, James. Oh, is it already moving? No, it's green. He's thinking nothing. There's <laughs> <laughs> those little blue speckles. Oh, oh, you're very that's... calm already. All right, so this is my brain we're seeing. Yeah, so if you just close your eyes and take a few deep breaths. What, 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 what? <laughs> don't stress. <laughs> don't stress. That way it's close. The brain just melted, right, thanks. Sorry, sorry. There. <laughs> so right now the brain is green. And, uh, uh, and again, great audio podcasts. <laughs> and uh, that means you're in a theta state. So theta state is the slowest of all the brain frequencies. <laughs> <laughs> that sounds right. <laughs> uh, oh, you got a little bit like annoyed that. at that. There's like a that. tiny <laughs> bit of red. A tiny little bit Sorry, of red. This is the deeply <laughs> insulted color. Yeah, let's, let's all insult James and see what his brain does. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Let's go. Let's go. Shh. <laughs> Who knows some secrets about James? Siobhan, shush. (laughs) (laughs) Shh, All right, what do I do? So um, you can basically try and and bring the brain into a faster frequency. Um, Oh, you're pretty good at that. (laughs) (laughs) So um, we we can try and solve maybe a maths problem or something like that. (laughs) (laughs) Biologists tend not to be awesome at math. So... I might throw I might throw the math question to um, to Tom. Do you want to Do you want to give um, James some math question? All right, we'll try this. Uh, James, just tell me as many digits of pi that you know. Three point one four. Good. Ish. Good. And a bit. And, a, and then some. Okay, so if a train is going from Sydney at 80 kilometres an hour north and another train from uh, Armadale is leaving at 4.30, 60 k's an hour, going west, what time will they meet? He's already tuned out. <laughs> <laughs> well, the Armadale train's going to be running late. So... <laughs> 
And and uh, I'm pretty sure it leaves at eight thirty in the morning. Tom Pitter, uh, to, yeah. <laughs> oh, oh, he knows that trait line. That's my smart ass brain yeah. color. Your brain goes rainbow when you're being a smart ass. That's great. <laughs> All right, and so this this is. Can, can you interpret this color wise? So I is it region specific as well? Yeah, so it's region specific. So basically, this is being illuminated by LEDs. Energy efficient lighting technology. <laughs> And um, there is 192 LEDs that are mapped to each individual sensor. So, for instance, like the front sensors will be mapped to a cluster of LEDs uh, at the front of the brain. So this is the front that you're looking at here. And it's also um, hemisphere-specific, so this side will be independent of the other side. Um, and the three colors that you're seeing, um, mostly green now, as I said, is theta, which is a slower frequency, but it's totally healthy. It's fine. We're all probably having theta states right now, drinking and, and everything. Cool. Um, what did you think about just then? I forgot. I, I don't remember. I, guess, I think hey, I was hey, thinking about my own brain. I think I just broke it. Hey, James. <laughs> think quick. <laughs> no. no. Uh, and then so you'll see like the other colors that are coming through. As I said, blue is when you're calm and meditative and relaxed. That's alpha waves. And then red is beta. Beta is the fastest energy brain waves which you get when you're embarrassed or stressed or excited. There's this chronic little red nugget over here. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's the only part of your brain that's like really active. It's right, right about here. I'm yeah. doing good. All right. We, we, What's we, we, that we. bit? <laughs> uh, that bit actually, I don't know. Is that like the language center? But... The, the, the thing about LEDs and also... That's where my weird accent is. Uh, yeah, it's, maybe. That's the dot. That's the well, that explains a lot. <laughs> uh, so the electrical activity of your brain is actually quite hard to interpret. I should just put that out there. It's, I call this like the star signs of your brain because you can really make this sort of fit anything you want to. It's quite hard to interpret EEG um, signals. And part of the work is kind of playing with that idea that you can create your own narrative around your own brain's activity. Um, so can I get one of these for, for home? Yeah, is it <laughs> insulting to ask an artist how much this costs? <laughs> to buy one? Oh, we can talk later. But <laughs> perhaps I mention I was poor scientist. <laughs> yeah. yeah, let's bid on this right now. We could, let's see, you're the highest bidder. Um, <laughs> Actually, this is my only brain, and it's quite precious. Um, <laughs> well, you know. Top dollar, people. Top <laughs> yeah. dollar. I have a bigger one, though. So this is the mini brain that I take around the, the world doing fun things um, and sort of, like, getting myself in the back door of events and things. Um, <laughs> but, but I have a bigger one, which is really cool. So if you ever need a giant brain, it's like a meter and a half big um, and, and that was the original one, so you can kind of really see inside all the neural networks um, lighting up, so it's quite mesmerizing. All right, I'm, I'm going to take this off because I feel like it's revealing a bit much about myself. I'm getting, a, I'm getting self-conscious. Thank you. <laughs> all right, and Chrissy also had some show and tell that you're handing out. Oh, yeah. Um, yeah, so from brains to no brains. Um, <laughs> hopefully most of you have seen the slime molds by now that I handed out. They are now your pets, so look after them. Um, they will invariably die, uh, as we all do. It's, can can they feed them, though? What if they get attacked? Yeah, you can feed them um, if you want. You can take it apart and throw some oat flakes in there if you want. It'll, it, if you do too many oat flakes, it'll get too big and escape. Um, but that's just Ooh. a happy slime. 
Uh, I can see the headline. Oh, yeah, yeah. The blob strikes again. But are <laughs> grand zero of the new slime mold epidemic. Here at the Camelot Lounge. <laughs> yeah, you guys were here. Yeah, patient one. Um, so just don't, don't despair if it dies because uh, I have a really big slime mold in the lab and I took little chunks of it to make those ones. So the slime mold lives on. Uh, Do they all uh, communicate with the mothership? Like, yeah, we'd, we'd be in big trouble if that was the case. Uh, but they could fuse back together and come apart. And, you, you mentioned in the break that they make spores. What, why? Yeah, so you probably all see that. So once the slime molds run out of food, uh, they will recognise this is a bad place to be and they will basically become spores, produce spores, um, little black, tiny, dusty things. And their purpose is to get attached to insects that are walking past and um, be transported randomly to, hopefully, a better environment um, where they hatch out and the whole weird life cycle continues of the slime mold. Have you ever accidentally breathed in a spore? Oh, I'm sure I have. I think I've, I've eaten that slime mold. <laughs> um, don't worry if you do. It's totally fine. Or your dog does or your child. Uh, they won't turn into a blob. So, yeah. Do they need air? Yeah. You didn't put, like, little holes. No. Most of them aren't um, sealed off fully. Um, <laughs> but don't be alarmed. Uh, they will consume oxygen in there, but they'll be, they'll be fine for a while. All right. And, Tom, you're wearing your show-and-tell tonight. Like, who, who are you wearing tonight, Tom? <laughs> uh, 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 this is my shirt that I made. Um, and it's, it's a shirt that I bought from, a, like, a Vinnie shop or an op shop. And I wrote Stempunk on it because I realised, uh, like all podcasts, you have to sell merch. That's a rule. I don't know if you know that. So, so I, I started a, an account with a shirt-making company, but then I realised it takes 2,700 litres of water to make a single shirt. And that's... Yeah. And I don't like that. So I went to Vinnie's and bought a bunch of shirts and wrote my, my name on it. Like, that's what I did. Uh, and I sell these. <laughs> You can buy these shirts on Etsy, is that right? Yeah. Like, that's, this is a horrible plug. I feel really dirty. But, but yes. No copyright lawyers in the audience, I hope. I hope not, but... Like, it's really silly. But it's a, I'm making a statement, you know? I'm making a statement. <laughs> yeah. And, of course, you can listen to the STEM Punk podcasts uh, to, to find out more about all the outreach stuff that Tom gets up to. Yeah, we, uh, I've, I've interviewed some cool people like James before... Um, and uh, Nobel Laureate Brian Schmidt and uh, amazing author Margaret Wertheim. My latest episode was with Corey, who is an Indigenous uh, scientist who is uh, sending books to Indigenous schools in Northern Territory off his own back uh, because he's found that a few schools had 15 books in their library. Uh, 15 books, and he's selling them. He's sending them uh, some, some more. He's just got a few books from Brian Cox. Brian Cox sent him some signed books, sending them off. Anyway, he's, he's amazing. That's, that's what we talk about. All right. I think that deserves a round of applause. <laughs> All right, we're going to move on to, to some questions. We've got some great questions from the audience, but I'm going to give you guys the opportunity to, to warm up. Get, get your question brainer happening. And I got a little pop quiz for all of you, and this is going to be a speed round, okay? So I've got a series of questions. You're going to, to answer them as, as quickly and efficiently and, and whatever as possible. I'm going to start with Tom. You're ready, Tom. All right, Tom. First question. Your time starts now. What do you want to be when you grow up? Astronaut. 
Good. Well done. <laughs> Question two. In Superman 2, how does flying around the world really fast make time go backwards? Uh, it's, it's a magic of movies. It doesn't. It doesn't? Yeah. Well, okay. what we do as, as scientists, we sit in movies with clipboards and write down all the things that are wrong about science. Uh, <laughs> I walked out of the, after the second third, sec, the second third of Inter, uh, Interstellar. Awful. The rest is awful. Really? Yeah. How did Not you go that with that movie? <laughs> How did you go with Gravity? What's that? How did you go with the movie Gravity? Uh, okay, so Gravity, funny, funny movie. It's a speed uh, round, right? It's actually, it's actually that should be, yeah, it actually should be called Angular Momentum because it's not about gravity at all. <laughs> but bada boom, right? But when when that movie came out, I actually didn't know that it was a movie. I just saw George Clooney going around the world doing press conferences about the concept of gravity. I thought it was a brilliant idea. <laughs> no. <laughs> All right, That's I think science communication the right there. <laughs> All right, keep going. Speed round. Question three. Who was the best incarnation of Doctor Who and why? The latest one, Jodie. Oh, all right. Can't argue why? with that. Why? Because <laughs> she's awesome. Yeah. <laughs> Good. Question number four. This is a tricky one. Can you recite a haiku about unmanned space exploration? <laughs> you know, just have one at the top of your head. Five, seven, five? Yep. Unmanned space explore. <laughs> That's five. Keep going. Uh, ing should not be called unmanned. Yeah, no, you're doing great. Keep right. going. That's seven. But perhaps. Two more. Um, human. Nice. <laughs> Round of applause for Tom Gordon. <laughs> That was great. All right. Wendy, you're up next. You ready for this? Maybe. Uh, question number one. What's your favorite color? Gray. Gray. <laughs> oh, I thought we were... That's a legitimate answer for a colorblind person. I thought we were supposed to be honest. Sorry. Is um, architects wear black, and I work with a lot of architects. Gray is sort of like... It goes with everything, but it's not so serious and pretentious. It's perfect. It's hard to make grey with light, though. That's the thing, is um, there are a few colours that you can only... Speedrun, speedrun. Shush. (laughs) (laughs) For the most part, you can only get in an object. And computer displays are a bit of an exception because they behave like objects. But grey and brown are probably the best examples. If you try to make brown light, you will get paint... faint, dim, yellow light. And if you try to make gray light, you will just get dim white light. So you're right. It is a very interesting color. Carry on. Good. Question two. <laughs> Question two. True or false? Shaquille O'Neal has a PhD. True. Nice. Did you know that? Actually? No, but it seems so unobvious <laughs> it had to it. be that. <laughs> I'm reasonably intelligent. 2012, he got a PhD in education from the prestigious Barry University oh, wow. in Florida. I'm not sure why you expected me to know that, but go on. You're the American on stage. That is true. (laughs) (laughs) All right, question number three. Gotcha. Is the blue that I see the same as the blue that you see? Doesn't matter. All right, question number four. (laughs) Dumb question, go on. (laughs) Leave it to the philosophers. (laughs) Question number four. How many lighting professors does it take to change a light bulb? One? That's correct. Good job. (laughs) Round of applause for Wendy. All right, you're done. You're off the hook. Good job. Thank you.
The Shaquille O'Neal one was a real sticker. You got it right there. That's good. Good job. All right. Chris, you ready? Yes. Question number one. Is it pronounced GIF or JIF? <laughs> it's pronounced JIF, but no one does that. Oh. Anyone say JIF? No. Yeah. GIF all the way. I do, I do say chasm. <laughs> How do you say niche? I say niche. Good. Yeah. Not, none of this niche business. <laughs> A bit of fungi? Definitely. All right. It's good. Good. God, we got that sorted. Question number two. There are ants all over my kitchen. What do I do? Uh, Learn to enjoy the ants in your kitchen. (laughs) Seriously, you won't stop them anyway. And they're disinfecting everywhere they go. They have little antibacterial compounds they're leaving there on your dirty, dirty kitchen bench, which it has to be dirty if it's encouraging ants, let's be honest. Is it true that ants make their own graveyards? Yeah, they what we call um, romantically called corpse piling yeah. uh, behavior. Um, I saw that. Yeah, I mean it's, it makes sense. It makes sense. They'll build a little little mound of dead ants in the last corner. Um, you know, why wouldn't you? I do it all the time. <laughs> all right, moving I think on. We need to check his backyard. Uh, question number three: If you were to study any vertebrate. What would it be and why? If you were to lower yourself so much. Do I have to fill out the ethics approval form? <laughs> That's the real question. So what would it be? Um, What's worth the ethics forms? Uh, I mean, they're all the same. Pick one. <laughs> what? Yeah, they're basically all the same. But isn't there like a super special vertebrate that you really empathize with? Yeah, I mean, if I was going to be one... <laughs> <laughs> Something with a backbone. Uh, probably an orca. I mean, cool social lives, emotionally and, and otherwise intelligent. Apex predators, live for ages, matriarchal society. It's perfect. All right, good job. All right, final question. <clears throat> what did the pink panther say when he stepped on an ant's nest? Oh, there's that tune that the pink panther has. Good job. Round of applause for Chris Reed, everybody. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Laura, like you last? Yeah. Question number one Who would win in a fight, Andy Warhol or Frida Kahlo? Oh, Frida. <laughs> All right, I'd, yeah, I wouldn't argue with that. Question number two Star Wars or Star Trek? Uh, neither. <laughs> Get out. Cop out. You're just trying to please the audience. Sorry, guys. Uh, both. <laughs> Combine them both somehow. Just right. make me watch it quickly. <laughs> well, in that case, Star Trek comes in shorter little, little yeah, okay. nuggets. All right, good job. <laughs> Question number three What do you get if you cross a painter with a boxer? Ooh, um, like colorful. Uh, That'd be cool, I think. If you put roller skates on them and then also had a paintbrush like on either hand. I don't know. Yeah, it could be a cool fight. Um, it's I'd incorrect, I'm afraid. Uh, the answer is Muhammad Dali. Yeah. Oh. Muhammad Dali. <laughs> Muhammad, you get it? Because <laughs> Ma- Dali was a painter. Uh, and, uh, and Ma- when you have to explain it. <laughs> Come and see me after. That's fine. Uh, final question. His face was kind of surrealist in the <laughs> after. <laughs> All right, final question, important one. 
minimalist art. Is it really all a load of wank? <laughs> yeah. yeah, but I really... <laughs> Definitive answer. There we go. <laughs> right of applause for Laura Jen, everyone. <laughs> All right, are you ready for audience questions? All right, let me just deal with my little papers here. All right. Uh, I'm, I'm going to let anyone field this one. So I think we could all have a crack at it. First of all, what the heck is synesthesia? I, I know about this. I, I don't, I've never experienced it. I do teach it a little bit. Um, but synesthesia is when somebody has a sensory experience associated with a different type of sensory input. And in order to be classified as synesthesia, it has to be very consistent. So it's not like one time you tripped and something happened. Uh, But one of the most common and I think easy for us to sort of understand is that some synesthetes have colors associated with letters or numbers or months of the year. And there has been, I think, some really interesting research that um, has shown that there is a surprising amount of similarity between people that have the same form of synesthesia. So if memory serves, memory serves, and I can't cite the author of the source, <laughs> all right. something we're not, we're not like expecting 60% of people who have synesthesia associated with letters well, the letter O will be white. And also a very high percentage A will be red, which is super trippy, and I cannot explain, but that is what I know of. And, of course, synesthesia works across other senses. You know, there are people that, that in music, uh, can they talk about, like, hearing color and things like that, but I kind of know vision, so I cut off with sound. There, there was a, a, an academic on Twitter recently who uh, was a synesthete and said, basically, tweet me your name and I'll tell you what it tastes like. <laughs> it was awesome. <laughs> did like, you do it? Like, what, what, what? I did. She didn't, she didn't huh. do my name. But there was like, someone would say, I don't know, Chris, and they say, it tastes like the feeling you get after you eat, uh, you know, a, a toilet roll at seven in the morning or something like that. <laughs> like, that was... Uh, it was really the, the universal really experience specific. we can all I've had that before with. weirdly yeah. <laughs> all the time <laughs> alright our next question is, is for Laura Laura uh, do you have an artwork at Mona in Hobart big head with windows into brain <laughs> no I don't oh alright <laughs> but I would love to have one in Mona Mona's like the coolest gallery out there alright for whoever asked this question I know what you're talking about it's freaking <laughs> awesome it's a great exhibit is that the one where you look inside the head and it's um, it's, it's all a, flashing oh, yes. it's like crazy oh I love that, that artwork um, no I wish I did that artwork <laughs> plug for Mona in, in Hobart if anyone's going <laughs> soon <laughs> alright uh, we have a, a Twitter question from at Chantronics says, how long does a slime mold live? Also, James, mum says you're doing great. <laughs> hey, mum. <laughs> Chris? Uh, that's a good question. So uh, we can maintain this current stage of its life cycle uh, in the lab for months to a year, and then it starts to get a bit weird. And we're currently looking into that because it sort of mimics what happens with people as they get older. They get a bit weird. Uh, they slow down. They can't do things very well. 
And we just see that in the same in the slime mold. So perhaps um, what we call behavioral senescence uh, is something that happens in single-celled organisms, just the same as it happens in uh, sort of more complex things like humans. Um, that would be interesting to see um, because surely the mechanism would be quite different. Um, but actually some of them can be immortal. So you can maintain a culture of slime mold in a shaken liquid broth basically forever. Uh, and people do that. They have strains that have been alive for ever since they started them and they're not showing any sign of, of decreasing. So the short answer is maybe never. It never dies. Yeah, so all the horrible <laughs> things I've been doing to slime molds um, bound to come back and haunt me. And they remember. Slime molds never forget, I've heard. That's right. have, have they tested putting humans in a shaken, shaken broth? That's great. Who here would want to be immortal if that's what you had to do? Someone probably does. Speaking of living in a shaken broth, the bar is still open. Uh, if you would uh, still like to get your drinks. All right, next question. Uh, this is about... Uh, LED lights, which are energy-efficient uh, lighting technology things, uh, are, are they really damaging in terms of frequencies and sleep quality and circadian rhythms and all that stuff? Um, they can be. Any lighting technology can be. So the science behind circadian rhythms has advanced greatly in the last 15 to 20 years. And we know that short wavelength visible light within a particular um, sort of range of wavelengths um, activates a specific photoreceptor that we have and that suppresses the production of melatonin. And melatonin is associated with sleepiness. So if we're exposed to short wavelength light at night, um, it's often more difficult to fall asleep. This can lead to sleep disorders and all sorts of other things. Um, so LEDs can have a significant short wavelength component, but really no more on average than any other light source of its same color. So when we think about the color of light, there are actually several dimensions, but the simplest is if you look at the light, some white light looks kind of yellowish, kind of warm, some will look very neutral, like a very pure white, and some might look quite stark and almost a little bit blue. So. With, with some subtle exceptions, if you were to say buy a compact fluorescent or an LED and they had that same color appearance, they're going to have a very similar circadian impact. For the most part, it would be wise for all of us to avoid a lot of short wavelength exposure. And luckily, most digital devices now have apps or features within the operating system that will do this sort of pseudo-automatically um, in the several hours leading up to bedtime. That said, um, LEDs themselves as a technology have been a little bit unfairly targeted in this regard. It's about the light. It's not about the technology that produces it. All right, so that's the short answer. It's about the light, not where it's coming from. Yeah. Yeah. Good. Good job. Next question. <laughs> uh, this has a, a traumatic uh, sort of uh, a vibe to it. <laughs> to all the panel, what, what happened in your childhood that laid the groundwork to get you interested in science? What traumatic, horrendous event happened that turned you into a scientist? Anyone? I was it's, really it's too hard bad to at talk sport. about. <laughs> yeah, it's too hard. Yeah. <laughs> you really are. Uh, uh, a few things. One of them is uh, when I was 
you know that scene in the... F- oh, no, I, I won't say that because I don't, can't remember the film. But I, was, I found out early that I was colourblind and I wanted to cure that. So I wanted to get into science so I could cure colour... I haven't done it yet. Um, <laughs> it's on the list, though. Yeah. All right. Little Miss Sunshine, that's the movie. Where the guy finds out he's colourblind then can't go to the Air Force and, like, screams for half the movie. Yeah, that's... Yeah. That wasn't me. <laughs> anyone, anyone else want to relive traumatic childhood memories on, in front of a live audience? I had a great childhood. I grew up on a farm. <laughs> um, so running around, being a, just a redneck was awesome. <laughs> so... From redneck to scientist. Yeah, See? redneck science is a thing. You can t- <laughs> We're out there. We're real. We're real. <laughs> All right. Well, while, while you're talking, Chris, I have another question about honeycombs. Why, why do they make this organized structure? Is it something encoded in their DNA? What, what's it all about? Yeah. Uh, so there are some simple rules that the bees use, um, and these, these rules um, govern sort of how they act, and... Very simple rules like I'm going to put some wax here if some other conditions are met. But, and it was often um, originally thought that perhaps this honeycomb structure, a very regular pattern that happens to be extremely strong, um, just naturally happens. So if you take a bunch of soap bubbles, for instance, and you stack them up like a, just regularly, they're going to naturally fall into this honeycomb-like pattern. Um, so people thought maybe the wax itself is just deposited there and as it heats up, it just sort of settles into a, a pattern of honeycombs. But in fact, it is deliberately built this way by the, by the bees. They don't know what they're doing exactly. But simple things like the, uh, the internal diameter of each of these cells is just governed by how fat a bee is and getting in there. So the bee's own dimensions lead to building a structure that is perfect for the inhabitants of the hive, which are bees. It makes total sense. Uh, but together, um, using these very simple behavioural rules, and with no bee being told what to do, there's, the bees aren't being told by any foreman bee, you have to put that wax over there. Uh, they're all sort of de- it's what we call a decentralised system. And none of the bees know where they are in a hive or where... Um, this comb bit has to go in relation to any other bit. They're very, what we call, localised information. So with this very severe restrictions on what bees can do, even using very simple behavioural rules, um, the interactions between the bees and the environment and the bees and other bees just lead to this, what we call, an emergent property of the structure, which is very efficient honeycomb-like design. And that goes for basically all other kinds of behaviours for social insects and slime moulds. Um, the crux of what we do is to study what are these very simple uh, local behavioural rules that the, the individual units use and how does that lead to this very sophisticated emergent properties at the, at the group level? All right, job. <laughs> Final question from the audience very quickly. We need a definite answer for this one. Is the dress blue or gold? <laughs> it's definitely a Wendy question. <laughs> I actually don't remember the... Like, there, there is an answer, right? There is whatever. But um, it depends on the color of the light, which is the whole point of the illusion. I mean, illusions are pretty cool because they actually give us insight into how the visual system works. Usually we're figuring out where it's failing. But the visual system isn't um, giving us a totally accurate representation of the world. We wouldn't want it to. It would actually take a lot more energy to do that. 
Um, and so illusions sort of illustrate where the, the shortcuts that we take fall over, are so different from reality that, that things sort of come apart. So but it's kind of like if you look at a, a, a red car and you ask someone what color it is and they'll say red no matter what's reflecting off it type of thing. Our brain just shortcuts into what we think we see kind of... Sort of. I mean, you're referring, I think, to color constancy, which is to say, you know, the light that hits something has a huge impact on the light that's reflected and enters our eye. But even though the light entering our eye can be vastly different depending on the lighting, we, our visual system can basically do calculations and say, I know that the light is this color, therefore the object must be that color. But in a photograph, you lack a lot of context. So depending on whether the lighting is that sort of warmer, yellowy lighting I was talking about, or what we would often call cooler, that slightly bluish lighting, um, it would have a very different impact on fabric of either blue or gold color. And somewhere very easily accessible from your phone, you can find out literally what color the dress actually is. So gold? (laughs) (laughs) All right, you, you can look that up later. All right, well, good job. I think that's all uh, we can fit in because there's one more thing we have to do. I, I haven't just been asking you guys questions for the sheer joy of it and because I appreciate your knowledge. Uh, this, this is a competition. All right, so we're going to... I'm actually going to test uh, your knowledge with a pop quiz and the winner of this quiz, since we're speaking of amazing design for the City Design Festival, the prize... For our quiz winner tonight is this solid gold, handmade, uh, one-of-a-kind, in-situ science trophy for whoever uh, is the oh best God, person. There's a ninja quiz. turtle riding on a, a Tyrannosaurus Rex. with a tiny frog on I've the bottom. I've always wanted one of those. <laughs> is with that a snake? snake? The snake's for arms, of course. Snake's oh, for yeah, arms. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Snake's for arms. <laughs> <laughs> Thought so. I was just Remarkable. That awesome. yeah. So keep in mind, this is what's on the line, guys. Before we start this quiz, this is what's going to happen. I All right. That, I want that trophy. I'm going to put it down here. All right. The name of this game is a catchy name. It's called Name That Scientist, Artist, Explorer Type Person. <laughs> All right. So, as what's going to happen? I'm going to ask you a question. Uh, if you think you know the answer, you're going to buzz in just by saying your name. And then I'll ask you for the answer. So, for, for example, if I were to ask this famous astrophysicist chats with celebrities on his podcast, Star Talk, he would say... Tom. Yes, Tom. It's me. Yes. No, it's not me. <laughs> <laughs> Other Neil podcast. deGrasse Tyson. I would say Neil deGrasse Tyson. They're very good. All right. Good job. One Let's point to me. Thank you. Practice round. Practice round. <laughs> Should we all understand? Already. Your name's is a buzzer. All right. Name this famous scientist, artist, explorer type person. Question number one. This children's book author was also a renowned expert in mycology. Question 1A. What's mycology? (laughs) Chris. Chris. Study of fungi. Study of fungi. Good. Not protists, by the way. So slime walls are not fungi. I want to put that out there. Okay. (laughs) I'm not an expert on fungi. All right, now that we've established what mycology is, question 1B. This children's book author was an expert in mycology. Anyone in the audience? Chris. Is oh. It, is it it's not John Bonner? No. Thank you. I don't think he writes children's books, does he? Yeah. <laughs> Very advanced children with Anyone want to yell this one out? <laughs> Beatrix Potter. There you go. Uh, 
Lady who wrote Peter Rabbit also. I really hope the audience doesn't get that trophy. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah. We're going to have to It'd share it. It'd be pretty it. embarrassing. <laughs> All right. Question number two. This famous rock guitarist later returned to university to complete his PhD in... Tom. Whoops. Laura. (laughs) (laughs) I'm going to have to give it to Tom, unfortunately. He said his name first. Tom. Dr. Brian May. Dr. Brian May from Queen. Well done, Tom. (laughs) So the the story was he started it and then Queen took off. And he had to leave and come back 40 years later or something. He also, he also built his guitar. Like, he's just a nerd. Just <laughs> built his guitar. Made his own guitar. Which is why no one ever sounds like Brian May, because yeah. it's his guitar. Is it true he plays with, a, like, a one-peak coin? Is that also it? Uh, I've not heard that, but it, I don't know. Maybe. Yes, he right. does. All right, good. Thanks. thanks. <laughs> that wasn't a question, by the way. Uh, it's a a it's killing you you didn't get that point, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> All right, one point for Tom. Question number three. This Italian actress-slash-model is now studying for a master's degree in animal behaviour. I've met her. Well, not... You've met <laughs> And I can't I've remember seen, her name. I've, I've seen her at an animal behaviour conference, and I can't remember her name. It's not italian Yeah, this is why this game is really not my forte. <laughs> uh, I know that she's the daughter of a famous uh, movie Director. Yes. Anybody else in the audience want to feel this way? Wendy! Uh. <laughs> the audience is getting it again. It's that table. It's not <laughs> trivia, people. <laughs> Isabella Rossellini. Everybody uh, go on YouTube. Google green porno. Yeah, Ignore the irrelevant stuff that comes up. Did you say brain porno? Green, green. porno. <laughs> she, uh, she has a YouTube series on animal mating behaviors. It's amazing. All right. We're doing well. Yeah. <laughs> I know someone's going to get this. Question four. This astrophysicist also wrote the science fiction novel Contact. Tom. 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 <laughs> Tom. Tom. Uh, Carl Sagan. Very well. Good job. <laughs> Did you try and buzz in with Tom's name? <laughs> Tom, Good you. job. Yep. <laughs> You're just handing it to him. <laughs> All right. Question number five. This famous painter... Founded the National Academy of Design, but is more famous for inventing a form of mathematic communication and contributing to the invention of the telegraph. Tom. Tom. Someone Morse. Do you want to... Samuel Morse. Take it. <laughs> <laughs> I think we could do a half a point each. That was a team effort. <laughs> All right. Good job. <laughs> All right, question number six. Uh, This fashion designer also holds a PhD in political science. How many fashion designers, political scientists can there be out there? Anyone want to try and name a fashion designer? Iris Van Herpen? Nope. Keep keep going. (laughs) We'll get through them all. Hot or cold, James? Hot or cold? (laughs) I'm the wrong person to ask. I've never heard of that person. Can you person. give us the nationality? Can we yeah, what's a clue? Down? Can we have a clue? Oh, James doesn't have Maybe any Italian again? They're all Italian. But <laughs> Isabella Rossellini. <laughs> give him the point. <laughs> uh, I don't know how to say it. Muccia Prada? Prada. Yes. There you go. I, I, so all the politicians wear Prada, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> she's, she's gotten in. <laughs> all right. 
Question number seven. Someone's got to get this. This Australian science communicator wears lined shirts. Chris. Tom. Chris. Dr. Carl. Chris Chomisky. Good job, Dr. Carl. Chris Chomisky. His shirts are made for him by his wife. Oh. oh that's delightful. <laughs> uh, question number eight. This often silent British comedian holds a master's degree in electrical engineering. Oh, yeah, I heard it in the audience. That table. <laughs> Often silent British comedian. It's not Sandon Laurel. The other one? Is contemporary still around? Oh, there it is. <laughs> I can't take that. Audience no, got it. that one. Well, what what you say it later? Rowan Atkinson. Rowan Atkinson. Yeah. Mr. Bean. Very good. Mm. Nice. There you go. PhD in what? Chemistry. A master's in electrical engineering. No, I should have. <laughs> Goes to show all these people had more steady careers in, in comedy and fashion designing than <laughs> <Yeah>. science. <laughs> I'd love to see a Mr. Bean episode where he does that. Some mechanical, <laughs> electrical electric. There's that one where he rides his car sitting on the roof. Oh, yeah. yeah. Uh, that's pretty much electrical engineering. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> all right, as, you know, as engineers say, all you need is you know, duct tape and a hammer. That's, mm. that's what real engineering is. Mm-hmm. All right, good. You're going to know this one, surely. Physicist that was also a keyboardist for 19... 19- Tom. Oh. Tom. Uh, Dr. Brian Cox. Dr. Professor Brian, Brian Cox. Sorry. Professor Brian Cox, good. Uh, keyboardist for 90s Irish pop band D-Ream. Basically, just say Brian for all these yeah, answers yeah. and get them all right. <laughs> oh, yeah, two, two Brian's. Two Brian physicists. Have you heard him talk about that song recently? Like, no. Since that came out, in, like, since the 80s, like, he, he hates that song because the song's called Things Can Only Get Better, but they're only going to get worse because of entropy. Like, everything's going to go to disorder. <laughs> <laughs> he hates it because it's factually incorrect. Yeah. All very sarcastic. This is why he's become a science communicator to correct all the errors of his former ways. He's trying as hard as he can. All right, final question. This Nobel Prize winner was also a passionate bongo player. Uh, Tom. Laura. <laughs> I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to call Laura for that one. Um, Just because you forgot your name. I could see you, you were it. there. It's, it's not Brian. It's not Brian. No. It's another white guy named, though. Go for it. You're making me forget his name. Feynman. Yes, Richard, yes, Richard Feynman. Feynman. Good job. Round of applause for our panel. All right. That was our quiz. How do we go with points? Let me see. On a grand total of point five points. We have Wendy. Round of applause for Wendy. All right. Uh, tied on one point, Chris and Laura. Round of applause for Chris and Laura. On a whopping three points was the audience. Round of applause for the audience. Good job. But you're a pip to the post on three and a half points by Tom Gordon. Tom Gordon, round of applause. Come and accept your trophy. There we go. And that concludes our proceedings for this evening. Give it up for our panel once more. And thank you guys so much for coming along to Institute Science and Design Festival. Come up and say hi to our panel. Thanks again. We're going to be back for the Sydney Science Festival in August. My name is James. I've been your host. Thanks again, and we'll see you next time. Thank you, James.
Claro, <risa> 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 <risa>